morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel or short story are really difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scenes, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, I am ecstatic that we have Amina Gautier, who is going to share the first pages of her short story, Lost and Found, from her collection, The Loss of All Lost Things. Good morning, Amina. Good morning. Thank you so much for being on the show. Amina Gautier is the author of three award-winning short story collections, The Lost of All Things, which won the Elixir Press Award in Fiction, now We Will Be Happy, which won the Prairie Schooner Book Prize, the USA Best Book Award in African American Fiction, a Florida Authors and Publishers Association Award Gold Medal in Short Fiction, and was long listed for the Chautauqua Prize in Fiction. Also, At Risk, her third collection, won the Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction and received an Eric Hoffer Legacy Award and a First Horizon Award. Amina... This obviously won so many words. Actually, when I looked at Amina's bio, I had to cut it down by like a tenth um, because she has published a record number of 145 short stories for which she has received numerous prizes, fellowships, and grants. It's actually, if you look on her website, I'd look on it because it's just astonishing. Uh, for her body of work, Gautier has been the recipient of the Penn Malamud Award for Excellence in the Short Story. Okay, Amina, and I didn't even read your whole damn bio, you know, okay. <laughs> but I'm so glad that she actually has time to join us and talk to us. So, Amina, why don't you give us a quick summary of the story and maybe, and also how it kind of fits in with the, the book, the collection as a whole. Sure, great. Um, I'm happy to be here because Michelle said I could just roll out of bed. So that was great. Um, The collection is called The Loss of All Lost Things. It's 15 short stories about different uh, forms and variations of lost. And the first story itself, Lost and Found, is about a young boy who is quote unquote lost. He has been um, abducted. And this story is told from the point of view of the boy um, and not the abductor. Just a little bit of context. um, This story was inspired by the Sean Hornbeck um, story and also by um, Todd Biquette, uh, who was a boy who was abducted back in the 70s. Um, So I will read the first passage for about five minutes to give people a feel of what this story sounds like. And then I'll be happy to talk about like how it connects to the whole collection, how it establishes the contract with the reader and you know prepares the reader for how to read and understand the entire collection. Um, one thing you should know is the abductor does not have um, an official name. He is referred to as this man, which is elided into this man because the boy um, only knows to call him that. Lost and found. Falling into step with the boy, this man draws close and whispers in a voice only for him, says, I wish I had a little boy just like you. I wish you were my own. And the boy believes it, every single word. He is lost, but not in the way he has been taught to be, not in a supermarket, not in a shopping mall. 
There are no police officers or security guards to whom he can give his name and address. There is no one to page his parents over a loudspeaker to come and get him. None of the clocks where they go give the correct time and there are no calendars to mark the days. He never knows where or when he is. He remembers little of how he came to be with this man. He remembers only being pulled into a car, waking up and finding himself tied to a chair in an unrecognizable room of an unfamiliar house. This man sitting nearby, watching and waiting. The television beside this man showing a movie with two naked women coiled around each other and writhing like snakes. This man predicting he would be a fast learner, pointing to the women saying he would learn to do the same. They never stay in any one place too long. They get into the car and this man drives. The boy is given something to drink before they leave and he never wakes until they have made it. Where they are is always secret. Sometimes it is a hotel room and they stay for weeks. Sometimes it is a borrowed house to which this man has the keys and they stay just long enough for the food in the fridge to spoil. In a borrowed house, this man feeds him soda and Cheetos for breakfast. The boy asks for cereal, milk, and juice because that is what his parents give him. That is what he knows. When he mentions his parents, this man grows angry, cuts him off, says, you're my little boy, I'm your father now. But this man looks nothing like the boy's father. And besides, his father never touches him that way. Hardly ever is the boy left alone. He and this man are together everywhere they go, unlike his parents who woke him every day only to leave him, feeding him, dressing him, rushing him only to rid themselves of him, dropping him off with strangers paid to care, and later depositing him at school in a classroom full of other left-behind boys and girls. This man wants him near all the time. If this man has a name, the boy doesn't know it, has never been told it, has been told not to ask has been told he asks too many questions. This man says that from now on, the boy must call him dad. If this man must leave, he ties the boy to a chair, twining ropes across his thighs and under the seat, across his chest and torso and over his hands crossed at the wrists until he returns. Stay put, he says, as if the boy could do anything else. Only once does this man forget to bind him. They are in a motel near an airfield. The boy can hear the planes as they take off and land when this man decides to shower and leave the boy free. The boy waits until he hears the water running before he tries to call home. He lifts the phone's receiver and dials the only number he knows by heart. As soon as the boy says hello, the boy whispers, ah, yes. Someone not his parents asks, who is this? The boy says, the listener hangs up. The boy does not guess that this man can play havoc with the phone and rearrange the numbers so that nothing matches up. Guessing the truth would only fuel the fire of his fear. From there on out, it's easy for the boy to believe what this man says. And why shouldn't he? After all, his parents have never come. No one in his family wants him anymore. Honestly, they never did. His parents are happy now, so much happier without him. Glad to be rid of him, they've moved on with their lives. Now they have only one child to care for, one less mouth to feed. They now spend less money on cereal and save on presents come Christmas. 
Now there is one less boy to whine and beg as they push the shopping cart down the aisles of the supermarket, one less child to distract them. They wouldn't want him now anyway, since he's no longer a good boy. This man is the only one who wants him. This man is the only one who loves him. This man is the only one who cares. The boy knows these things because this man tells him so. His words, a litany the boy hears so often, he thinks they are the thoughts inside of his own head. Once, during his predictions, this man put his hand on the boy's shoulder and said, your little brother doesn't even remember you anymore. He thinks he's an only child. He doesn't remember a thing about having you for a brother. He'd squeeze the boy's shoulder and squint it into the distance as if he could see past the thick motel curtains and the dirty windows that were sealed shut, past the motel parking lot that he had already checked for out-of-town plates, past it all and straight into the boy's home, past his front door and the foyer where he always left his toys and on through the swinging door and into the kitchen and dining room where his mother sat feeding his brother. He doesn't ask how this man knows he has a baby brother. It confirms what he suspects. This man knows all. This man can see all things. This man's threats are not idle. If this man says that he'll kill the boy's family unless the boy behaves, the boy knows it to be so. Wonderful. Okay. Yeah, this story is absolutely riveting. It's very difficult to get out of your head. <laughs> um, okay, Mina, talk to us about how you believe the story fits in the collection of the whole and what it's doing to teach us how to read that collection. Yeah. So um, a lot of fiction writers already know, right, the adage about establish a contract with the reader. So for a novel, obviously, that's the first couple of pages, teaching the reader how to read the novel for a short story, an individual short story. It's maybe just the first um, two paragraphs. And then for a collection, the first story or the first two or three stories, depending on the length of the collection, need to teach the reader um, what to expect during the collection itself. So this story is the only one that's from the point of view of a child, but children being threatened or endangered or being um, deeply thought about in some way uh, appears in every one of the 15 stories. So this story tells you how important children are going to, to be. Um, it also, I think, teaches the reader that we're going to talk about like physical, tangible loss, like the boy himself is lost, but right? he's been kidnapped and abducted. But there's also loss of expectations, loss of innocence, so that throughout the collection, people won't hopefully won't expect it to just be about a bunch of uh, abducted people or people who are lost and disoriented, but also about the different um, subjective things that we lose like our sense of ourselves, loss of confidence, um, loss of security, that, that we're going to examine all forms of loss in this collection, which I think this opening story um, signifies. I think it also talks, tells us that missed connections are going to be important. Like we saw in the moment where the boy thinks he's calling home and he's not actually getting his parents, right? The idea that people are gonna keep missing their connections with each other 
it's something that uh, shows up in all of the other stories as well. I didn't um, finish reading this story, but it uh, has a section where they are watching the Twilight Zone and where he's also watching um, a Christmas special. And so this story, I think, also tells readers that pop culture is going to be important like throughout this story throughout throughout the collection people are watching like different reality tv shows um what they're listening to what they're reading what they what they sit home to watch on tv all of those um pop culture references are important like what what they like and what they respond to lets us know a little bit about who they are or uh, where the story is going to go um the importance of power Right, yeah. that all the stories have people who um, are sort of vulnerable in a certain way and are like sort of fighting to empower themselves. Right, this boy obviously is vulnerable in in all the ways. He's with a stranger, someone who's larger than him. He's he's physically restrained, and he finds a way to empower himself by identifying with a character from an episode of the Twilight Zone, right? It's the only thing that he can find to latch onto to make himself feel that he like has something, that he has some sort of power, that he is inviolate. Um, and that's something that appears in all of the stories as well. And lastly, the uh, the importance of rhythm, language, and syntax, like the specificity of specific words. This story ends with the boy thinking about the difference between being lost versus being taken mm -hmm. um, and preferring to be thought of as lost because it's a more hopeful phrase in his mind because things that are lost can be found as opposed to thinking of himself as something that was taken, which has a more vulnerable connotation. And so this story, if you, as you heard me read it, it probably had a sing-song quality, you know, as you're listening and that's on purpose, right? Because it's from the point of view of a boy. One of the things that I wanted to do uh, was sort of mimic what I thought the sound of his thoughts would be. Mm -hmm. So I used the sort of short sentence structure that we would find in um, a Dick and Jane primer, like the kind of... Um, books that he would have just been reading before he had been abducted, right? So here's Dick, here's Jane, see spot, run, run, spot, run. You have all these like sort of short uh, primer sentences or sort of nursery rhyme rhythm that we use to teach children how to read and remember things. So like, for instance, this story doesn't have any long windy sentences. It has a lot of short rhythmic um, sentences and each story in the collection is going to have its own rhythm but that rhythm, language, sentence, and syntax and diction are going to be important in all 15 stories. So I think this one story sort of signals all those things um, to the reader so they're prepared as they go through and nothing shows up as, oh, this is a surprise. I didn't know we were going to be talking about things like this. Um, and I guess the last thing that this, the reason I put this story first um, is that even though we're talking about abduction, Obviously, there are references to sexual molestation, sexual assault. Um, there's nothing graphic in this story, yeah. right? Like that's deliberate. I don't, I'm not interested in 
exploiting children or exploiting vulnerable people. So I think that the tone of this story lets readers know that we are going to talk about many difficult topics, but we're going to do it in a way that is hopefully subtle, um, respectful, and non-exploitative. Like, I don't need to spell out the different things that are happening to the boy. There are other moments that are not sexual that become just as fraught with tension. Like the parts that I read, like he's being made to watch pornography. He's being tied and restrained. There's all these other moments of touching that are not specifically sexual that become just as violating as um, the sexual molestation as well. Um, so I put this story first to just kind of prepare readers for, for all of those expectations. Yeah, great. Um, and it's interesting that, so in the later stories, we have a lot of children that it sounds like that are also victims um, to certain situations. So to have to center a child in the very first story to make sure that we're not only just seeing that we see them as a, as a full character, as a full human and not just um, a secondary character or a victim um, seems very, very important. I absolutely noticed that sing-song quality um it's 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 part of what makes the story so mesmerizing uh and he even he loses his own thoughts because the man is repeating to him certain phrases certain truths that the man wants him to believe and then the boy repeats them to himself and thinks that they they've entered his head in such a way that he thinks that they're his own thoughts mm-hmm. um so and and you just keep deepening that that sense and that idea of lost throughout the story, you know, and through to the end where we see how he just, he yearns to be lost instead of taken. So even renewing language in that way is what it almost feels like. It's, it feels like we revisited language. You know, I remember, um, so Gordon Lish, some of you guys might not know him. He's a, he was a big time editor and he's kind of, kind of a problematic personality, but he, came to visit my MFA program when I was, I don't know, 22. And I didn't know what I was doing. I don't know if I still know what I'm doing. But anyway, so I was very young. And he gave a long talk with us. And he kept repeating uh, over and over and over again, how he when he was an editor, he liked to be able to walk home and visit his girlfriend at the time for lunch because those were great visits that he could have. And he always wanted to make sure that he could visit his girlfriend for lunch. And he kept repeating it over and over and over again during the during the talk that he gave us. And in the very end of his talk to us, he said, it's been very nice visiting with you. And we all broke into laughter because we realized that he had remade the language. He had actually redefined the term visit. Um, and I feel here, the, your whole collection is redefining in multiple ways, multiple refractory ways, what loss and, and lost is and what it means. Um, so when we first, and we never, you don't identify the boy's name, which seems important. Is why so for you? Why did you make that choice? Um, well, one that I think that it can be part of him losing a sense of himself, right? right? Like, like forgetting all the things that are like specific and 
particular to him too. Just I've wanted. I don't want to say he's a universal boy, right? Because there are references to to his age, right? When he watches the Twilight Zone episode, and you, I I say that the boy is close to his own age, and if you know that episode, you know how old um, that boy is. But I didn't want him to be like a specific particular person because I've written so many stories into his. Like I specifically mentioned um, Sean Hornbeck and Todd Paquette, but I did about like, I did several years of research on um, child trafficking and and the history of it in the US, like from the seventies forward, like when we stopped using the word like runaway kid and started using like kidnapped. And um, there are other people, Jessica Mullenberg is in here as well. So there are um, a lot of factual details from multiple children's stories. Um, I got some transcripts when there was a show um, where the adult children, the adult version of the children told their own stories and they used their own words about what it had been like and how long they were with their captors and the different things that had been uh, done. And I pulled, I wove um, a lot of those details in. So the moment with the phone, like changing the dial pad um, happened to Jessica Mullenberg, right? Mm -hmm. Where her uh, abductor kept her um, in a hotel uh, room and then checking for the plates is also from her story. Uh, the kidnap, the, the Kool-Aid, the drugged Kool-Aid um, is from Todd Biquette's story. So like, it's not just the research from one abducted child, but it's from several. And I wove them all in to sort of show that like, they're all this boy or that this boy could be any of us. Like there's nothing like special in particular that he did right, to um, lead him to being victimized. He was just a young boy and he just got nabbed. Yeah, An interesting use of the Twilight Zone story. And that actually, I, I believe that that was both a Twilight Zone original story and then was actually part of the movie um, of a boy that has absolute power who can wish for anything. And he in some ways terrifies, terrorizes those around him because he has such absolute power. And for a young boy who has no power at all to, to reflect on that um, is, is, is both horrifying and sad. It's just, it's really an interesting juxtaposition that you use that. Um, the name Thisman in and of itself is, it just makes you shiver. There's a hiss in there. And it's strange. It feels off. It feels uncanny. Um, there's something strange about it. And also what he's telling the boy at the very beginning, I wish I had a little boy just like you. I wish you were my own. Because there's something about that that's tantalizing to anyone or tantalizing even to the boy. I want to be loved. I want to belong. I want you to be with me. Um, I want you to want to be with me. And when, sometimes when he thinks back about his parents, he thinks about um, how they would just hurry off to drop him off at school and wanted to just, uh, you know, leave him there with all the other abandoned children, he says. So this yearning to be loved, but it's also this horrific thing is that that the man manipulates his deepest yearning for love and connection. And the man is offering that to him and saying he's the only one that can give it uh, that control that he has over his mind. Um, is the thing that you represent so, so well here. Um, 
And then I also wanted to refer to when you talk about the nothing, the um, the graphic material and the repetitions. Um, you know, so here the language, the boy is given something to drink before they leave and he never wakes up until they've made it. Where they are is always secret. Sometimes it's a hotel room and they stay for weeks. Sometimes it is a borrowed house to which this man has the keys and they stay another stay just long enough for the food in the fridge to spoil in the borrowed house. So that's a repetition. This man feeds him soda and Cheetos for breakfast. The boy asks for cereal, milk and juice because it is what his parents had given him. That is what he knows. When he mentions his parents, so you're almost riffing off of language that is already um, it, that's already in the sentences, and it creates a kind of mesmerizing um, effect. Do you do that in your other work, or was this really about the child and representing the child's language? Um, I play with language in all of the stories, but differently. Like there's a story in the collection that's from the point of view of the boy's parents um, that has a completely different. Uh, rhythmic tone, like the sentences are longer and mel melancholy. I use more sibilants; they're more liquid sounds. So, like each story gets its own sort of um, language play. But in this one, um, you're right. I wanted to play up the psychological aspect because when I was doing the research, you know, on these um, the specific children, like I saw just a lot of um, I don't know what I would call it, but just like negative commentary that really disturbed me of sort of like people blaming the victims and be like, well, well, why couldn't they just get away? Like in like Sean Hornbeck's case, like uh, he had been abducted for so long that there was a point in time that his abductor let him ride a bike in the courtyard, right? And so people are like, well, if he could ride his bike in the courtyard, why couldn't he just get on that bike and escape and, and get away? And, you know, just wanting to, people just wanting to focus on like, the physical aspect of being like sexually abused or or uh, physically abused, um, and sort of forgetting the the deep psychological manipulation that remains to make someone stay, right? To sort of show that the boy does come to believe that this man is all powerful, and you know, one of the things that multiple of the vic multiple victims said is that they did believe their captors to be all powerful and they didn't want anyone in their family to suffer the same thing right so there's this idea that if you can get me right then you could probably do this to my sister my brother my father my mother I'd rather it be me than them because I've already gone through it and I don't want them to go through it right mm -hmm. that that there's also that kind of aspect so I wanted to play up the the mental part the psychological part to just show how he's disoriented and how he is surrounded like by these thoughts by things that are unfamiliar um and with the the twilight zone you talked about like sort of like playing with things and turning them upside down like to me that's I didn't see the movie but you know like every new year's twilight zone comes on like and that episode scares the mess out of me. Like, I think that's like the scariest Twilight Zone like episode ever. And I mean, I wanted to use it because I think there's this cool thing where, you know, that boy is also the boy from Lost in Space, right? Yeah. So there's this like reference to Lost for people who know the actor, know the reference. Um, but he's a villain, right? In this episode, that boy <laughs> is a, <laughs> excuse me, is a villain, you know, and to sort of show like, 
all the different psychological turns that can happen that would make him a hero in someone else's eyes, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of like flip that on its head because that kid is an absolute villain, but for our boy, he's a hero. He's someone to look up to. He's an aggressor. He has power. He can do things. It's interesting that we do that with when with blaming the victim and then also it sounds like the victim blaming themselves is it's almost an attempt to erase the monster. Like, no, the monster doesn't actually exist. We and they people that can't just deal with the the existence of monsters. Um, so we need to erase them and, and put all the weight on the victim themselves. It's yeah, it's sad and terrible, but rather human. Um, I did want to mention this line too. Um, at the bottom of that paragraph I was reading, when he mentions his parents, this man grows angry, cuts him off, says, you're my little boy. I'm your father now. But this man looks nothing like the boy's father. And besides, his father never touches him that way. Hardly ever is the boy left alone. And that's that's the part where you're you're leaving out the graphic. You're giving us just enough that we know, sadly, that we can fill it in ourselves, but you're not going completely in that direction. I really admire that decision. Um, and do you you do that in the rest of the stories too, kind of backing away from, because we don't really need to go into fully the horrific detail that some authors would go into. It's almost as if they're enjoying it. Well, you know, um, I want to make sure that the reader doesn't get to enjoy it, right? Like that's, yeah, that's right. A, like, you know, there's, there's an, I mean, I I understand and I respect the idea of wanting to lay it all out on the table so the person just really, the reader can be pulled in and know, like, this is how it really feels to get sympathy. But everyone's not reading for sympathy, right? People are also reading for titillation. You just think about, like, you know, um, as a teenager or a preteen, like, just looking for the kissing parts in books or something like that, you know? Um, and I think that these kids, the real ones and the imagined ones have already been exploited enough that I did not want to leave space on the page for a reader to unwillingly, to unwittingly exploit them, right? I did not want to have anything in these pages that the wrong reader would like pick up and get off on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's done really, really, really well. Okay. I mean, I'm going to have to let you go because I need to get these writers back to their desks. Um, everyone, you can find our full schedule on the Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes for our past two writing challenges, as well as on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please rate, follow, and review our podcast so that we can find other listeners. So Mina, again, you've got 145, I, you probably have more now short stories the fact that you've even written that many short stories let alone publish them and you probably have written 300 because you probably haven't even published all your short stories what advice do you have off to give to authors to be able to produce that much but produce that much quality work um write as much as you can on a particular story and when it's not working leave it alone and work on something else. I do not write quickly. People assume that I do because of the number, because of me being prolific. But, you know, it takes me anywhere from three to seven years to finish a story, but I write multiple stories at the same time. Like I've never actually had writer's block because if I'm working on a story and I hit a snag, I just save the document, leave it, op open up another story. And I tend to work out that problem. Like if I'm 
get stuck on dialogue in one story, I close that document and maybe I pull up another story that's going to be mostly dialogue. And then I'm just working on dialogue for a couple of weeks and kind of like working through it. I don't get hung up on, I need to finish this specific story this month or, or right now. Like I know that they will all eventually get finished and that what's important is that I'm advancing each of them. Um, so I might go in thinking I'm going to work on and finish a particular story and that story might need six more months or another two years. And I go into this other story that I hadn't thought about for a couple of years and I can work on it and get it to be what I want, like in three weeks or, or over a weekend, you know, to just keep writing and don't get hung up on like a specific story. Like if you're, you're a fiction writer, you're going to write lots of stories and it doesn't really matter which one you write before, before the other one. So you just follow your energy too. follow your excitement, follow whatever story is calling to you at the time, probably while the other story you're stuck at. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think novelists can do that as well. Right now I'm kind of working on three novels and I've been, I've been kind of like, Oh, I got to finish this one book. But I also, the, the allowing yourself to take a break also allows you, gives you the necessary time away so that you can see it again, defamiliarize, it forces that time away, which a lot of authors don't take time away from their work, not enough time away from their work. Follow that, folks. I know you probably won't do it, but I recommend you follow that. Amina's got 145 stories published. Okay, Amina, thank you so much for being with us um, at Standing Story Outstanding Collection, and I really appreciate you spending the time. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. There isn't nothing here at all